0: Welcome to episode 300 with my guest, Jeff Rosenthal. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. Uh, I am a hypochondriac, though, and uh, does that make me a half a half-doctor? Uh, I do Google a lot of shit to scare myself on uh, on the internet, but uh, yeah, just think of this as more as a waiting room that doesn't suck. The uh, website for this show is uh, mentalpod.com, and Mental Pod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. Um, before I forget, I want to remind you guys about the In This Together Festival, which I'm going to be a part of. It's coming up. It's uh, November 13th in uh, Los Angeles. It's at the Avalon in Hollywood, and it's going to be from 4 to 11.30 p.m. I'm going to be doing a live episode of our podcast starting at 4.30, kind of kicking things off, uh, with my guest uh, Royce White, who some of you may know as an NBA player who has had struggles with uh, anxiety and, uh, and some other issues in the past, and he's a mental health advocate, and I cannot wait to, uh, to interview Royce. Uh, there's also going to be uh, the show Mortified. It's going to be doing a live show. We're going to have stand-up comedy by uh, Beth Stelling and Kimya Dawson of Moldy Peaches. You mem- uh, know that sh- that song. I forget the name of it, but uh, Ellen Page plays it in the uh, on her guitar in the movie Juno. Anyway, uh, Kimya is going to be there uh, performing and. Daniel Johnston, who was, uh, one of Kurt Cobain's favorite singer-songwriters. Uh, he's going to be performing as well. So, uh, for tickets or more info, go to ITTfest.com. I'll put the link on our website. And, uh, it's, it's going to be really cool. Kind of a nonprofit mental health awareness event. Um, uh, we're going to have a support group room upstairs. It's really, it's going to be cool. I'm very excited about it. Uh, I got an email for those of you that listen to the podcast regularly know that I kind of broke with tradition yesterday and uh not yesterday on last week's episode and uh felt compelled to speak my mind about uh the national dialogue that is going on right now around um the topic of sexual assault and presidential candidates and I got an email uh from uh Bart and Bart. Right. sorry you lost me. I'm a long-time listener and looked forward to your podcast and found it therapeutic and eye-opening. It helped me feel like I was not alone and that many people go through these crazy things in life... That are the subjects of your podcast. Your anti-Trump rants are offensive and uncalled for. Believe it or not, we are adults out here incapable of forming our own rational opinions. Everything on the news is not true. The news media and TV are corrupt. I know this from first-hand experience from working in media. I will not try to talk rationally to you about this because that is pointless and I'm not here to argue with you. I am telling you this because I am truly sad to lose this resource. Well done, Paul. Well, actually, I I do think I did a good job. Uh, I was factual. I didn't exaggerate. And if you think what I said was offensive, imagine what victims of sexual assault feel uh, when people still stand behind a man who finds it funny, who at 59 was still bragging about it, Imagine, imagine what survivors feel uh, when they turn on the news and they see um, victims being shamed, um, being called money grabbers, you know, uh, attention seekers. That's offensive. Um, placing other issues uh, ahead of your neighbor's autonomy over their body and their basic human dignity that's offensive and this is a watershed moment in our national dialogue about sexism, rape culture misogyny uh, and I would also like to say that I've used this to look at myself and the parts of myself that I need to improve. The, 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 the things I've done in the past where I've fallen short, very short in being the man that I want to be. I've had, uh, monthly donors canceling, uh, in the last week or two. And, um, I guess that's part of, uh, taking a side. It bums me out that there has to be a side to this, but, I feel like not only am I on the right side of this issue, I am on the right side of history, and I would rather have a smaller bank account and a clear conscience. And if you're saying, but what does this have to do with your show? This is, you know, this is other territory. It's not. This is healing and safety and vulnerability don't happen in a vacuum. It happens out there in real life, in the messy world with complicated people. And I've never met a survivor who wasn't afraid to speak their truth. It takes something out of you when you have your dignity and your safety and your innocence taken away. A part of you leaves forever. And that's more important than a trade deal, an immigration policy. Those things I don't believe belong on the show. But anything around human dignity and trauma, that belongs on the show, and I refuse to apologize. Let's do some surveys. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself ugly sister and uh, about her anorexia. She writes, Two hours on a running machine for one apple because my parents told me about the high sugar content in fruit. Snapshot from her life. I'm sitting in a McDonald's as each member of my family discusses their therapy meetings. When I say I want help, they say I don't need it. You know, I just, I wanted to read this because I wanted to say to you, then, then please tell them that you do actually mean it and you do need help and tell them why, or tell somebody else that you can trust. Maybe a school counselor, somebody, but, um, That really bums me out that 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 was your parents' reaction um, to that, and I'm sorry that that you're having to deal with that. Uh, SSRI Diarrhea writes about her love addiction. Uh, You keep making jokes about me being a whore, and I won't object anymore because I don't want to hurt your feelings. About her depression. Ha! Go to the grocery store. Even being awake feels like I'm going to war. By the way... Uh, some of the, the the things that she shared in that survey, talk to somebody, those of you who, who don't think the uh, predatory behavior uh, being chuckled about and being something to brag about uh, affects people, um, talk to somebody who's being triggered, hearing that being dismissed on the news every day. Find out what a survivor goes through, how many times a day they're triggered by a noise, a smell, a phrase, a look on someone's face. I'm getting worked up. Um, Lipstick and Lithium. I love that name. Uh, struggles with uh, bipolar disorder and uh, self-criticism. And she writes, I'm so self-critical. The only thing keeping me alive is the fact that even my suicide note will never be good enough. That is fantastic. Uh, she would like to hear more episodes with uh, trans guests. And, um, that would be great. I'm always looking to to have uh, more of a variety of guests. Uh, you might check out the episode with Pigeon and the episode with Lauren Hennessy. And if you're looking for a guest who is gender fluid, I know that there are a couple. Um, none are coming to mind uh, right offhand, but I think Nandi La Sofia uh, might be a guest who's gender fluid. But I could be wrong. Apologies to Nandi if I'm wrong. Uh, This is filled out by RCA O'Neill and uh, his issues are uh, depression, ADD, anxiety, OCD, and being a sex crime victim. And a snapshot from his life, he writes, the essence of being bipolar is that I love the idea of sleep, but only until the sun goes down, at which point I just want to run in circles. Dude, you have just described exactly how I feel. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It's like the earlier I get up, the more tired uh, I am. Sarah uh, writes about her depression. I call it my stock market because it's up and down, and though I have no control over the direction it goes, I can at least decide which stocks to invest in. About her ADD, a page full of words seems to just have a, a single word, and I cannot even seem to absorb that one. About her anxiety, it's that terrible friend who makes you feel bad about yourself. You you can't seem to get rid of them. About being a sex crime victim, I worry more about how my abuser feels than myself. By the way, also something a lot of survivors struggle with, uh, especially when their abuser was a caregiver or a relative. Uh, And about her anger issues, um, or I guess the anger issues of her dad. She writes, and my dad patches up the holes in the wall from my head. And whistles as though the problem is solved. Now that you can't see it, I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently, I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness
1: Probably 87, 88. Yeah. Oh my God. Not years, but 1987,
0: 1988. No, nineteen hundred eighty-seven yeah. years. Yeah. Um, we were, uh, yeah, we were at the crucifixion. Of, that, uh, I remember that. We just missed it.
1: I was, I was yeah. selling uh, kettle corn. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jeff's mother, Christine Keys, uh, passed away last week. Christine was a guest. On this uh, this podcast, about four years ago.
1: Yeah, I I was trying to figure that out um, because yeah, I don't know. I think I think about four years ago Uh,
0: when people ask me, "Do you have any favorite episodes?" It's always hard to you know even limit it down to fifty episodes. But if I'm forced to pick, uh, you know, my top ten episodes, one of the ones. I would always tell people is, um, Christine keys. She was a child in the Warsaw ghetto, um, uh, during world war two and her story. Um, I, I describe it to people as cinematic because when she told it to me, I could picture it as a, as a movie. And, um, after she and she was she was wary of of, of doing interviews. Why didn't you tell me how it came about that I uh, interviewed your mom? Uh,
1: you know, I think we wound up you and I wound up running into each other at dinner, and uh, we were talking about uh, the podcast. And I was talking about the fact that my mom was coming in, and it struck me that uh, the way you did your podcast was some. Uh, was a way that my mom liked to think she liked to think about what are the things that, you know, one does in their mind to survive things because she had to figure that out in order to survive growing up in the Warsaw ghetto during the war. And I mentioned it to you. And I just I remember feeling as I mentioned it to you, like she might do this. And I think she might like to do this. And I think for some reason it might be important for her to do it. And, uh, I just, I promised her that I would do it with her. You were, you were very interested, which was, uh, a a great way to sell it to my mom. And then, um, the only other thing was my promise to her. She, she always needs to, if she tells a story, she always needs to get the, to the end where she gets out. And, uh, Yeah, I just uh, caught myself saying uh, she needs to. And as if she's alive, she died Saturday, everybody, October 8th. So uh, it's I'm still uh, I still grab the phone to text her and uh, and either just file away what I was going to say or try to figure out who might be the most interested. That's not her. That, to me, when I lost my
0: dad, was one of the most painful things about it, is you go to do that regular thing and realize you'll never be able to do that again. Yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, when I was leaving, when I was last communicating to her on Saturday uh, and leaving her room, I said, I started to say, I will miss talking to you. And I, I said to her, you know what, Ma, I was about to say I'll miss talking to you but I'm going to talk to you all the time. So, wow. Yeah.
0: There you go. Have you said anything, uh, since she passed, you know, talking to
1: her? Uh, yes, I, I actually, and I, I never know how people will see this. I, I had another friend who passed away in 2000 and, uh, you're poison, dude. I actually think I'm a carcinogen. Yeah. So that's why I know I'm sitting farther away from you than most guests do. Yeah. Uh, Jeff's actually in another I've, room. Yeah. Uh, it actually seems that a, uh, every time there's somebody that knows me really well and I, and I, I rely on them to talk to all the time, they get cancer and they die. Uh, or they turn out to be a narcissist <laughs> and, uh, we stop being friends. Um, uh, yeah. What were we saying? <laughs> that, talking to your mom. <laughs> well, uh, I've had some very uh, – I've asked my mom a couple things. I, I had told her when she died uh, – And she passed away of cancer. She, 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 had can- she got cancer about eight years ago. Uh, so she had had cancer when she came and talked to you. Uh, it was – she thought a very slow-moving cancer. She had a lumpectomy. The extra stuff they wanted her to do to cut her odds down, she felt would be debilitating to her life. Um I have a stepsister who's a nurse who told me recently she believes if she had done those things my, that my mom had actually would actually have died a few years ago. Uh, and then when the cancer came back, uh, probably as far as she knew, about a year or so ago, and she had something else removed, uh, and they again said you're going to need to do this, and she just thought about it and didn't want to spend her life. You know, she didn't want to. She knew that would be would knock her back out of her energy. And the thing is. You know, my mom was a very strong, independent and powerful woman who did not want ever to be hindered by some BS disease. The Nazis didn't get her. There wasn't going to be some disease that made it so she couldn't take the walk she wanted to take or whatever.
0: And she was a university professor.
1: You know, this this whole death thing has been pretty was pretty intense and remarkable with my mom in that I went home twice in the last few weeks, and the first time I went back, she had come from the hospital where basically she knew that she didn't have long. She was a little – could, you could hear she was frustrated that this was going to be the amount of time she had left. She didn't really understand how fast things were going to go, but she knew that it was fast, and I start to get the sense that they – if you get that information I don't I don't think people who hear that or hear things are die or say, "Oh, they told me I have about 3 weeks." You have to get that information from somebody else who's on the scene. So I think she knew and I and I was taking on that she probably had about 3 weeks left and I didn't know what the end was going to look like, but she was still walking around the house and we were talking and she said she said, "You know, I, I kind of think I brought this on myself because I felt like I completed the things I needed to do. And I feel like the world is in horrible shape. And I feel like here it is. I started with Hitler. And now we've got Trump. Uh, it just doesn't seem like it's going to get much better. And I've done everything I can. Most of my friends are on the other side. She had lost. She had said this. She'd lost most of her friends as a child at it by age eight. From the Holocaust. From the Holocaust, um, and so at that point, she, you know, she she had come to terms with it. We were at the doctor, and and uh, at one point in this, the, I had two trips. I, I called them. The, I mean, there are the two separate trips back to Boston area to see my mom, and on the the end of the first one, we actually went to her doctor where she's, you know, sitting in the doctor's office and they're saying, so you've, you know, you're here because your stomach hurts, you know, that kind of thing. And she's like, oh, well, I've, you know, I think we're, my mom's like, I think we're at the end here. And uh, I'm just going to do some palliative care and uh, do some hospice stuff and just wanted to check in, you know, and she and, and the uh, the PA, the physician's assistant left the room. and Boy, that's as big of a faux pas as uh as it gets. Yeah, you start to realize, you know, can you take two minutes and read the chart before you walk yeah. in? <laughs> like, wow. that would be helpful. Yeah. Uh, but my mom always handled that stuff with grace. She never wanted anyone to feel like she was, you know... She didn't want to be pitied. She didn't want to be pitied. She didn't... And that was part of the reason why she didn't tell a lot of her friends what, exactly how bad everything was. She didn't want people walking around her like the person who was about to die and and that kind of thing. And And so... Uh, my name is Jeffrey. She always, for some reason, called me Jefferson. Uh, I, and so the PA left the room and she said, uh, oh, Jefferson, I hate to tell you, but I think I kind of brought this on myself. I just feel like I'm done. And, uh, you know, I. Uh,
0: I don't understand how she could think she brought it on herself. what, what she, It's not she, like she lived a crazy life chain smoking.
1: No, but she felt, she felt very powerful. At, at, and I admit, I feel that her, I feel that there are many things already have happened since she's left the physical plane that are so coincidental. It's insane because I had asked her to make sure she gave me some signs she was around. And I said, they have to really feel like signs. Uh And she sort of felt like that, like, you know, okay, I could probably fight harder if I wanted to. But she also said, I don't want my obituary to read, you know, she lost her fight with cancer. She fought till the end. She was like, I don't, I don't want to end fighting. I want to end reading and eating foods I like. And she doesn't, she didn't like the imagery. And my mom was big on, on, on that. Didn't, wasn't, didn't care for things that she felt, you know, were mean spirited and I don't know if that's true. She she loved South Park. She really liked the uh, <laughs> the parody awesome. of the uh, of the. <laughs> I, it was a there was a tolerance South yeah. Park that she used to tell me about all the time. She loved yeah. it. She was a sociology professor. She was a sociology professor at Brandeis. She was a philosophy major at Cornell. Um, she went to graduate school in Michigan, and then she uh, became a, a at one point a, a sociology professor at Brandeis, and then she left academia and went off with a, with a commercial fisherman and went to Haiti and Alaska and uh, uh, ended up in Plymouth being an organic uh, cranberry farmer. And that's where, and and we, we spoke a few months ago about her feeling exhausted and like she couldn't do another season of, she would sit at that old sort cranberry sorter and they'd get a couple volunteers and they'd sit around and sort cranberries and, send them off to people for the holidays and complain about it every year and then do it. And so we had actually been talking about how does she at, she would have been 83 in November. uh, How does she get out of doing that? Because she sort of felt like she was done. Uh, And I said, you know, you're like, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, I would say her age and she would say, don't speak like that to your mother. So I still don't understand
0: how she thought she brought it on herself.
1: Uh, it was because she felt like psychologically she was saying you know i think i've done what i need to do there's nothing i feel like i'm really looking forward to so i'm right, i can be taken I, uh, I don't think she thought she brought it on herself 8 years ago i think she felt like now she was shutting down that she was not in, she was not my mom always said and and i think i have it in me as it's, well do you mean to say that she, she her, her des- desire to live,
0: kind of evaporating, helped the cancer come back, or her her not having the same zest for life that she used to uh,
1: somehow she, helped it come back. I think she felt that that was part of it. That she had this uh, she had this notion that you had to have these things you were looking forward to in order to help the fates get you there. I see. Okay, you know, now and my, I understand. Yeah, and my mom was big on um, big on fate and coincidence and things like that. And uh, I preserved a couple of texts because I wanted to to uh, hold on to them as as philosophies and things that she had. And there's a couple of excerpts from the book that remind me of that. And uh, and I, I'll tell you, I mean, I the first trip that I went home, I got there on a Saturday, and you know, this was to the Boston area cuz she lived in Plymouth. Uh and I was going to go down to visit her and, on on Sunday and then stay there for a few days. And she said, uh, come down Sunday and then um your stepkids, your step uh siblings are going to the Red Sox game and you should go with them." And I was like And
0: and Jeff is a diehard Red yeah, Sox I fan. Yeah, I used to
1: work at Fenway Park when I was a kid started at 15 my friend Jimmy still sells beer there we started together meaning he's been there 34 years he has another job as well uh and yes i am i am a rabid uh red Sox fan and so i said i said in the in text i said you are let me can i read the yes, response absolutely. so i uh, i turned off my phone so that will take a second That's okay. but uh um i said you're you're telling me that you want me, your son, to prioritize going to a Red Sox game over visiting his sick mother. And we also used to like to play the the uh, Jewish mother-son thing, which we were not even remotely close to. As, as a joke. And as a joke. Like, yeah. you know, she would always say, you can't say those things about your mother, and it's time for you to call your mother, and things like that, which is not at all how she was. But it's going to take forever to fire up. But... um, it was, it was clear to her that I was supposed to go to that game. And so I, the, the, the end part of it, while well, my phone is warming back up, is that it was probably the best regular season game I've ever seen live. And I bought myself the best ticket I could find. Uh, and it was clear to me that she had sent me there so that I could have this great experience of seeing this particular game. So when I said, you're telling me to prioritize that, she wrote this back to me. I don't like missed opportunities, especially if they are coincidental or fate determined. If you do that, the fates get mad and decide not to bother doing anything nice for you again. Wow, that's pretty harsh.
0: That's pretty harsh.
1: Where do you think that comes from? Uh One hundred percent comes from everything that happened in order for her to survive, in order for them to get out. So many different things had to happen. Uh, And that's what's in her book. And then I and then I hold up the book. That's what's in her book. Shadows of Survival, a child's memoir of the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, And by the way, it is on our uh, Books We
0: Recommend. If you click on our Amazon uh, link, our little Books We Recommend comes up, and you can get it. Either um, the kind you can hold in your hand
1: or a Kindle. Kindle, and I think Barnes & Noble might have it. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, listen. And she got to hold it in her hand a she, week before she died. She held it a week before she died. I have a, I had this tiny thing. I like to say that some of my procrastination comes, I think, from my mother, and that she'd been trying to write this book for thirty five years. Listen, if you read the, if you read the acknowledgements, you'll understand. Uh, I'm, this is me not talking to you, Paul. I'm talking to your listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll understand the part that you, Paul. They, you listeners will understand the part that Paul played in In having this happen, because she she felt inspired by getting the story out, by getting a uh, transcript of uh, the show uh, to write it, and in some ways, I think she felt like she completed this and had and that was what her job was. She always felt like her time after the war was all bonus time, and so you know when you go through something like this with with someone you love you realize you know that they uh this part is about them and it's very hard it was very hard for me to just you know i had to say i'm not done with you but if you're trying to get out of here i will do whatever i can to keep you comfortable and send you on your way and and believe that you know there's somewhere else and there's some other way that we stay in touch and and uh uh, while I was there, I, I thought to myself, I, I will do that, and then it's, I'll fall apart later. You know, later will be about me, but right now this is about you. And so... Uh, so t- tell me about the Red Sox game. So, well, that Red Sox game was just... Uh, that that was trip one Red Sox game, because hmm. there were two Red oh, Sox games. Oh, okay. Yeah. T- tell me about the second one. The second one. So... Uh here 's the deal uh on the day my mother died, I had decided that she didn't want her kids there watching her die, watching the very end of her life and as I said, my mom and i we were very very connected and you and have two, uh, you have a brother I have, I have a brother and a sister i have I have four adopted sisters with my dad and my stepmom mm-hmm. uh, and i'm I'm very close to every kid in my family uh I'm sort your, of. Your parents divorced when they were how old? My parents divorced when I don't know how old they were. I was one okay. when, when my parents divorced. So it's clear you caused it. I'm pretty sure they were like, if we're just going to make these. There's no pretty sure. Let's shut it down. No,
0: there's no pretty yeah. sure. You yeah. are manipulative, one year old.
1: Yes. Yeah. That's why I, I you know, the sidebar, my mom used to always say, uh, Jefferson, can't you even entertain yourself for five minutes? And my joke was that the reason I went on to try to do comedy and be in comedy was I wanted to prove to her I could not only entertain myself, but a room full of strangers. So, uh.
0: Yeah. So the second, uh, you, you had decided that she didn't want her,
1: her children. Yeah. So it was a very, it it was a difficult. It was a difficult journey because we were at my mom's house in Plymouth, my mom's house in Plymouth, which is not our house. It is not where we grew up. It is not, it's not a place where this is the I, cranberry house, right? This is where the cranberry bogs were. They had chickens. Uh, you know, it was in in some ways a, a small farm. Uh, and, you know, and not the kind of place where there was regularly like extra rooms for us to all stay and the, that whole thing. So I, n- it never really felt like, a place where I belonged. So uh, it was hard to be there for me for many, many, many reasons. (laughs) And um, Captain Bob, Bob Keys, who was my my mom's husband, uh, and uh, I think about 13 years younger than my mom, uh, he and I were in his garage talking about how to, Move forward in this very heart. We were both exhausted because, out of everybody that was involved, he and I sort of had been there the longest, had been doing night duties, you know, giving her water when she wanted water and morphine when she wanted morphine and morphine when she wasn't able to ask for morphine, but it was obvious that she needed it and it was on the schedule to, through hospice mm-hmm. to help her uh, not feel so agitated. And so. I felt this need inside me the night. Let me go back the night before she'd passed. I was starting to realize that I needed to leave and that I needed to. My brother had already decided. My older brother had already decided he was leaving Sunday. My sister was convinced that her daughter duties were to stay there until mom passed. And I just kept thinking about it. And I kept thinking, mom does not want us to see our strong Mom fade away it's just not what she wanted and i had actually hoped on the trip before that she would tell me that you know i kept thinking oh she knows she's dying i'm going to get these pearls of wisdom what i got was i at one point was sitting on the couch with her and she turned to me and said hey do you want to watch the a team (laughs) no she was like have you ever heard of the a team and i was like the a team I used to watch that when I was a kid. I have no interest in it. But if you want to watch the A-Team, sure. So it had spread to her brain. It had spread to her brain. And wait, brain. Was one of them named Brain? No. Uh, face. There was Face. And, of course, Mr. T. Uh, and she, I kept thinking while we're watching the A-Team, she's going to turn to me and I'm going to hear something. I'm going to hear something about life. And we were watching the A-Team so uh so i just kept thinking you know she she's uh i've done i've done what i need to do for her for the most part something was bothering me on on friday night i realized that it was that this horrible thing where you have to pick a funeral home and the and what the after plan is while the person you love is still alive and in some ways communicating her speech in this, during the second trip, it, every day, less and less. And as a matter of fact, at one point, she basically said to me, I'm having a very irritating lapse. And she paused. And I said, is it a lapse between what you're thinking and what you want to be able to say? And she said, yes. And that's the thing. She really hated if she didn't have control of her faculties and, you know, she was not somebody who was going to drink all the time and all, you know, she wanted to be able to have her faculties with her. And it was, it was really bothering her. And, and and so I, I spun it around in my head and I thought, all right, you know, the thing that has to happen is uh, for me is I need to feel like I know that after she passes, that immediately after whatever that has to be, that's taken care of. That it's not like my grief stricken, stepfather is unable to get her out of the house, you know, or what it is. And, and this is, you know, I actually think uh, it's something that I think America needs to figure out, you know, you've got to face this and it's always so taboo and I'm downloading. I almost, I almost thought I couldn't swear, but I can swear, right? Yeah. I'm fucking downloading cremation documents for my Jewish mother. Oh, man. Who is while holding Hol- her Holocaust God. book. And I'm writing, you know, I'm filling out her name and her date of birth and I'm doing, and I just figured I'm going to set it all up so my stepmother she want to be
0: cremated? or was She it, did. She okay. wanted to
1: be cremated. She actually wanted to be buried on the National Seashore next to her her favorite dog uh, from the past, our dog Martha, which she got on Martha's Vineyard. And uh, Martha is somewhere on the National Seashore. Don't arrest us. And, and uh, it's, it, it doesn't make sense anymore because I'm not sure we know exactly where Martha is. Don't think it's legal. Right. Uh, so, but you wanted to be cremated, so you're downloading. So I'm downloading the paperwork, and I and I am jujitsuing in my mind. Like you know, don't overthink it. This is this paperwork that has to be done. Someone has to do it. So do it. So I did it. I filled it out. I gave it to my stepfather. We discussed how, who was going to pay for it, how that was going to work. And I thought, okay, that needed to happen. And that's happened. What's left. Well, what's left is that my sister is bereft. My sister believes she has to be there the whole time. And I know my sister doesn't. And that my mom doesn't want her to do that. And so I take my stepfather aside and I say, how about this? I think we're not supposed to be here anymore. Uh, My brother's in there and he's, he's, uh, he's saying goodbye and and he's going to leave Sunday. I had, by the way, made my flight for Saturday. And when I made my flight reservation, I felt like I was, when I made my return flight, I felt like I was giving my mom her end date because I had decided I will be able to go home by the 8th of October. So I tell my stepfather, look, I'm going to, I'm going to, go in there and say goodbye and then I'm going to leave and I'm not going to come back. That's okay with you? He said, yeah. I said, but my sister needs to know that you've got mom until the end. She needs to be reassured. So he went, he told her that. I said, now when you do that, my sister Lisa will leave and when my sister Lisa leaves, then I think mom can let go. So I uh, Bob went and talked to my sister. I told my mom I would talked to her all the time. And that I'd like to write the movie of the book, but I'm going to need her help. Uh, And I left. And then my sister went in and said uh, that she was leaving, but she might come back in a couple of days. She said that really agitated my mother. (laughs) And then my my sister came down to the cottage down the street that we were staying at. My brother went up, back up, because he wanted to say goodbye to my stepfather to get a book. And he called us and he said she was gone. And that was probably eight minutes after my sister left. And I believe I have, a, I have a connection with my mom where I just knew. And, you know, many people say that people need to be let go. They need to be told they're, it's okay. But literally, I said, I've got Lisa. She's, I'm going to take care of her. We're all on board. We all agree with every, all of your plans are coming through. The book is getting out to people. Everything you wanted to do has been done. We're taking care of it. You can go. And like I said, I, I, just, I knew my sister was the last piece. So my sister left, my mother died. We all took a deep breath. I said, I want to get the fuck out of here. This is not where I live. This is not where my memories are. I want to go back to Cambridge. So we went up to Cambridge and then the, the Red Sox game part is that, uh, the Red Sox were down two games to Cleveland. They were having their first home game and, uh, in the playoffs mm mm-hmm. If they lose, they lose they're out. And if they lose, David Ortiz, Big Poppy, never plays another major league game again. And I had in the beginning of the year thought I gotta get to his last game. For people who don't follow baseball, uh paint a picture of
0: Big Poppy for him.
1: Big Poppy is this gregarious uh guy from the Dominican Republic with a great gap-tooth smile and He's beloved by everybody in baseball and all the other teams. Uh, Incredibly motivating. Uh, He And swings the bat like Babe Ruth. Swings the bat like Babe Ruth. He just, in his retiring, in his last season, has had maybe the best final season of any player in any sport. Yeah, and he will definitely be a Hall of Fame player. He will be a Hall of Famer, and for a a designated hitter, that's a big deal. But he, he was, you know, he helped the Red Sox win three World Series titles after not winning anything since 1918. And he's a big deal, but he also is a big gregarious force. And he is someone who every time he hit a home run, he would cross the plate, point to the sky, and he would say, that's where I would see my mom because his mom had passed away. Mm -hmm. So I, I go to the game and I'm sorry, my fellow Red Sox fans, I knew we were going to lose because I knew my mom wanted me to see the final Big Poppy game. Now, listen, I'm not a narcissist who believes (laughs) that the Red Sox world revolves around me. But a very odd thing happened, which is that I found out after the game that at one point during the filming of David Ortiz being uh, saying goodbye to all the fans after the game on the field, uh, they showed the crowd and they show me and then they cut to David Ortiz crying. I saw it. And you've seen it and those weren't the seats i bought those were seats that my nephew said let's go down and move there uh it, i i just i just honestly feel like my mom got me to that game and put me in those seats so that i can forever have this televised image that connects me to this player that i loved so much and whose name was big poppy and even though my brother and sister hate it i feel like in 3 days i lost big poppy and big mommy so and the other cathartic thing was that during the game i just i got to scream after the game when we wanted ortiz to come out i just was screaming we want poppy we want poppy we love you poppy and at the top of my lungs most of it meaning my mom you know plenty of it meaning david ortiz himself and it was magical and there were there and there have been plenty of other things since things today, things that happened yesterday um, that I've always felt she and I were connected in that way, that she has some some pull. And I and and I think every time I think that I want to deny that, I say to myself, she fucking deserves it. Her childhood was garbage. <laughs> I mean, that was, you know, that was PTSD Taking care of your dying relative also I think gives you PTSD. I can't believe it's part of the the system. I can't believe we're in this whole deal where everybody goes through this. Really? That's a crappy idea. You know the, the other two things I'd
0: like to throw in there that I I would like to see changed in our society is the way uh vets are treated when they return oh my God. From, yeah. from war. And the way uh, survivors of sexual abuse and assault are talked to, um, treated. Uh, I would love to see people educated on things to do or don't say. Um, uh, and also people that that uh, have a terminal illness, things they don't want to hear.
1: Yeah. I, I think I think uh we could use a a, a dummy's guide to being a good person yes. or a dummy you know, a dummy's guide to dying. To not it, putting your foot in your mouth. Yeah. yeah. And uh you know I I uh, uh that I'm, I've been a television producer and at times and uh and in many ways, I felt like I was trying to produce my mother's death and and manage all of us and the personalities that were all down there um, I will say a deep thing between my mother and I is that uh when she left with her husband, the commercial fisherman uh thirty seven years ago, I was a twelve year old boy. Uh, Or 13, it might have been, I'm not sure the exact timing. But, uh, you know, I lost my primary caretaker. uh, And I was down in Plymouth with with my mother dying in her bed and my stepfather reminding me over and over again of how great it was that my mother took off with him 37 years ago. And that hurt uh, because that was a horrible time for me. That was a very strange, and you know, suddenly I was not able to. Con- my mother went to Haiti at one point, and I could only talk to her if she called ship to shore at the same time that I was home, and she and, had and been. Go ahead. No, she'd been my, my primary caretaker. So my point of of saying it is that while I that was really hard for me to hear over and over, and in some ways infuriating, and in some ways it felt very insensitive of him. I also had to acknowledge that he was grieving for the loss of his wife of 37 years and that there was no value in me making an issue of it. And I think that's something I've really learned. And I've learned it from my mother uh, and I've learned it from my brother, who's a lawyer, which is (laughs) that, you know, you have to think about it, imagine the response and see if it's worth it. And uh, it wasn't worth it. (laughs) That is some really good advice. I mean I think I think it's true and I think sometimes uh well here's a phrase I came up with, with a friend of mine who uh was going through a divorce and they were very angry and wanted to respond to something that they felt was unfair or whatever uh and they read me what they were going to write back and I and I said I think that sometimes I said I think you're fighting fire with fire I think sometimes you have to fight fire with water. And I think, I, I actually thought, does, does anybody say that? Because truthfully, that really is the way to fight fire. <laughs> I'm not sure why everyone suddenly thought to fight fire you fight fire with fire. No, no, no. You fight fire with water. You've got to tamp it down for and
0: put it out. Forest uh, firefighters they do fight fire with fire sometimes. Yeah, well, that's, so that's really true. to control. That's what's what called it. a yep. controlled burn. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Oh, I wanted to do that some. Was con- so
0: dickish of me to say that right there. No,
1: I yeah. I, I okay. wanted to do. A, I'm trying to figure out what a controlled burn would have been in this situation. You know, and in some ways, I I managed a couple of controlled burns in that I I. I managed some things by not fully capitulating myself to the situation, but saying, you know, going, you know, I'm actually doing something here to take care of everybody. Mm -hmm. So people listen to me, you know, and I and I often wouldn't in my in the past. I didn't think my opinion was any smarter or any or or worthier Mm -hmm. to be listened to than anybody else. And so I would sit on my hands and not offer a a possible solution. Mm One of
0: the things that a lot of uh, therapists and support group people recommend is write that f- furious right. letter. Right. Just don't send it. Right. Call somebody that you love and trust and read it to them. Right. And a lot of times that's enough to get the...
1: Yeah. I've I've started angry letters out. to people, and then by the time I'm done, I'm signing it with love. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it starts out like, they deserve to know this, and they deserve to know this. But... Uh, talk some more
0: about the complicated relationship how you could um reconcile the mother who essentially abandoned you she did at 1213 yeah but who you also have this connection to and you always knew loved you what how did you how did you reconcile that in your Brain or or uh, have you not tried? Or, or no, I'm no. not
1: saying you should. No, I, 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 over the you know over the years, I I figured out different ways that it had affected me, and I and I I vacillated between uh I can't use this as an excuse, and this is absolutely why I'm like this, and it's okay, it's okay I'm like this because this happened, and this has been my reaction. I can't use it as an excuse. And so I, and I struggled with that because I, you know, my mom didn't like complaining and she used to find me and she also didn't like apologizing for something that you hadn't really done. Uh, Like if I did something and I would say, I'm sorry. I would sometimes get (laughs) fined a quarter for saying, I'm sorry if it wasn't, you know, it's like, Mm. you know, uh, Oh, I stubbed my toe on that table. Oh mom, I'm sorry. Don't say, I'm sorry. You didn't do anything. You know, and I think that may have been a war, uh, mechanism for her of of uh not taking on things that she was not responsible for um but i remember one that at the end of everything i can say is that my mother and i had cleared the air and that my mother and i were incredibly close uh as a matter of fact a, a month can I read another text? Is that all yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And b- that, before that exp- we forget, I also yes. want to ask you if she
0: ever put into words how she felt about leaving you when she was tw- when you were twelve or thirteen.
1: Well, she okay. Let me let me go back. I'm this is my not to embrace ADD. Did I just erase everything there? No. Okay. Uh, one Mother's Day, I was very depressed. And I was just sad about my life and I called her and I was down and I couldn't, I couldn't get up enough to say super sweet things to her. I was, I think I was probably in my mid twenties and I, I was lamenting the loss of that time with her. I was unsure of my choices because I felt like I didn't, I hadn't really had any true guidance, and I felt like this brilliant mother, who's a sociology professor, and must have things to say and to teach me that, that would have really impacted me from twelve to eighteen. And that's when she was missing. And that's when she was basically missing. I was with my dad and my stepmom, and they were great and and everything. I mean, you know, there's always mm-hmm. stuff everywhere, but but it wasn't. But. I was used to being with my mom all the time and every other weekend with my dad to all of a sudden living with my dad full time. So I was really down. And and then she said to me, you know, I tried to give you kids freedom and I think you experienced it as neglect. And it was that sort of contrition that allowed us to be honest with each other um in a way that we hadn't been before and we just at times we we just got closer and closer thank you know thank goodness for technology once once we could text each other and call each other really easily we were in contact a lot and especially the last three four years we just became closer and we really liked each other my mom was somebody who was interested in everything I took her to a show and I took her to a Cirque du Soleil show in Vegas and we almost didn't get to the show on time because we walked past a Krispy Kreme store and it had the donut machine and my mom was fascinated by all of it and that's the thing is I I wrote this about her on Facebook My, my my mom was uh, was intelligent and interested. She was interested in things she wanted to. Exp- I could take her to a friend's show and she would sit down with them afterwards and talk about it in such depth that I was moved. Uh, and you could see my friends feeling heard and feeling like they were getting to explore their own work on a different level because the sociology professor was interested in it.
0: Did you feel when she came back into your life fully at at 18 that you got to experience that side of her?
1: Well, no, I mean, she didn't. I mean, she wasn't really fully in my life. You know, at 18, I was going to college, and then I left college and I met you mm-hmm. in Chicago because partly I felt like uh, my, my, my parents moved from... Can- I had no home base anymore, so I was freaked and i a friend of mine was moving to chicago and i jumped on that Uh, i'm gonna he was telling me how great it was uh and uh and your roommate who was pete moore he Mm -hmm. and i had gone to college and he was telling me how great it was and so i thought well this sounds like you know i've heard only good good about chicago and i remember like halfway through the drive to chicago i was like holy shit i've never been here before i i don't what am i doing i'm I'm almost twenty but i n like it's i i was net, i was a homebody a mama's mm-hmm. boy i uh, I don't know where it came from but i needed i needed to go find myself because I had finally realized at about twenty that I wasn't gonna get any answers from my parents All right let let's just back up for a second sure.
0: and f- please forgive me if uh this comes across uh as I don't know. My mom likes Come, dark humor, so okay. okay. Um, well, this isn't a joke, but do you? There's a part of me that wants to say, "How could you think that leaving your kid at 12 was letting them
1: experience freedom?" And I think it's because my mother had a traumatic childhood where she really had to rely on her on her wits, but her wits following her mom and her uncle, but. I don't know that my mom got to be much of a kid at 12. I mean, she, I guess she, she at 12 was 1945. I think she got to the States about the end, uh, about 46. So I think she was, she's was probably 13 when she got to the States. And, and just, uh, I think she probably viewed herself as really, really mature for having gone through what she'd gone through and i think she probably viewed that i could be that and maybe even thought that look there was part of it that was definitely i've been momming all this time and your dad's only had you on the weekend time for him to step up and i want my freedom hmm. and uh and i did i did have part where where i thought you know wow that's i would never do that to my 12 year old and that was a that was a big issue between us uh and it it's the reason why i've always said and you know i say this ma that she was a terrible mom but a great friend wow you know and and uh and by terrible mom i I also i also mean i was i just went to the sub shop that was probably where i ate three nights a week for most of my childhood uh i went back there to to get a to you know relive my childhood a little bit uh with my mom having left us and uh and I was like, I think I got sent for dinner to go get myself a sub, like, you know, three nights out of the week. It wasn't like she was cooking it all the time and, you know, um. but I think we grew to be so close. And, and one of the things, I mean, I'm telling you, I walked around that house while she was sick and I went through everything in my brain about how I was affected, about how I had to step up about it and not make it, you know, the not do throw a pity party, you know? And one of my primary emotions was what a fucking waste. We were so close at, at, by the end. Imagine what our relationship would have been if I'd had her helping me figure out life from 12 to 18 from 12 to 23, you know, 25. I mean, I, you know, we picked back up, but we weren't ever, she went to Alaska. She always wanted me to visit. I never wanted to visit because I just didn't want to be around them, them together. My mom would, uh, my mom was, would sort of kowtow to my stepfather. And I felt like she was not quite the person that I was with when I was alone with her. And so I never really liked being with them together. Uh, it just wasn't. It wasn't the experience I wanted. So when I ever had the choice, I usually said no. Even to go to Alaska, see Alaska. To me, it was, yeah, but then for part of the night, I'm going to have to shut it down and be in that ha- whatever their house is and under their rules and the whatever. They're, and it just didn't appeal to me.
0: Um. So it sounds like you you wanted your mom to be present when she was with you. And when it was just the two of you, she was present. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and she felt seen and heard. Oh and,
1: yeah. She was, and she was a remarkable presence. I mean, she really, she really was in, in her passing, the people reaching out and, you know, we lived with this other family when we were, uh, when I was about four or five and the kids from that other family who ranged from probably 50 to 59, I think, uh, three kids. And, and, uh, there were three of us in about that age range. And, uh, they've all been reaching out and they actually just went, they did a little tour of trying to find the house in New Hampshire that we all went to in the summers, uh, in tribute to my mom because my mom was a big part of their lives. And many people wrote to me and basically said, you know, your mom said this one thing to me and it, I've thought about it my whole life. You know, my mom was a powerful woman. My mom was, was a, a, a staunch, uh, women's rights advocate when that came around, when she was here, uh, back, you know, living in the States. Uh, it just was, uh, I don't know. I'm not, what am I answering the question? It's, uh, she had so, there was so she touched much, people. she touched people. And I felt like there was so much she could have given me. And I did feel a little bit like you're supposed to give me everything you possibly can because Hitler wanted me fucking dead. Hitler wanted you dead. I'm not supposed to be here. The dark comedy world, if it weren't for Hitler, I wouldn't be here. Uh, but, you know, that's the thing. Is like I, I, I just, in the last years, as we became close and close and closer and closer, I just thought, fuck, imagine the tools I would have. You know, and that, that I had in me. I, I had that frustration these last few weeks, walking around thinking, what would be different? what would I have accomplished where would she and I be mentally you know connected uh anyway <laughs> well i was i was curious about that so yeah. so th-
0: thanks for uh thanks for sharing about that did uh was there anything you wanted to read from from the book
1: there is actually i kind of wondered i was going to talk to you about this before we started the record but uh uh I definitely Actually, there's a piece from the introduction and then a piece from the afterwards. And I and I don't know on these podcasts what's too long. I also am not uh, – because the afterwards –
0: Don't worry about any
1: of that. Don't worry about length or don't, anything? Okay. No. So I'm not uh, – If you see drool coming down my face, wrap it up. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, well – let me put these two pieces together okay i don't know how long this will run it's basically maybe five pages of material okay stop apologizing yes okay or my mom will find me a quarter (laughs) so let's take a look at the this is the in in the introduction of her book there's a spot that i um how many more light do you uh Uh, yeah let me turn the overhead okay once again, everybody. The book is called "Shadows of Survival," a child's memoir of the Warsaw Ghetto by Christine Keys. That's Christine with a K and Keys with a K. K e e s e. Thank you. Um. Let's see. This was the. Okay. So this is this is the. Uh, this is the end of the introduction. As my ordinary life went on, I still. I still couldn't bring myself to write my story. Why bring to others what I was trying to get away from myself? You write to bear witness, they say. A witness to what? To this single event? The horrors of the world kept multiplying around me while my own experiences receded into the past. There was South Africa. I had recurring nightmares of the Charlottesville massacre. Then came the Vietnam War. I was there too, huddled in a hut. Terrified of those who wanted to kill me for reasons I could neither understand nor prevent, I refused to keep the graphic anti-war posters that my friends hung on their walls. You may need those to remind you, but I carry those pictures in my head all the time. I don't need to be reminded. I need a space where I can try to forget." I studied and taught social science, which has to do with how people behave and why. Yet I did not find the explanations I was searching for. I wrote books and articles, but not about my own experience. The current wars and horrors kept happening. My children were grown and had children of their own. My stories trickled down in partial versions as part of the family history. I still believed that it was better that they should not know the whole story. But then, quite unexpectedly for me, I too became older. There was no one to ask questions about my memories, no one to fill in the details, and very few were left who shared my experiences. My children were now being entertained by films that depicted parts of my experience. I wanted to know what they were being told, so I went to see Life is Beautiful with Roberto Benigni. The New Yorker published my letter in which I contested the reviewer's objections to the humor and his disbelief in the story. Survival is always hard to believe, full of strange coincidences and unpredictable events. There is always humor and all the other constant aspects of life, no matter what the circumstances. I went to see Schindler's List because my children were going to see it. I also saw The Pianist. Some friends were warning me to stay away from that film, as it was too close to my experience. But my Aunt Marisha, who was a Holocaust survivor as well, said, Don't worry, you won't see anything you have not seen before. Afterwards, she asked me, do you remember it being so frantic? No, I said, but this was three years depicted in less than three hours. Then I started to think that there would be no one left to tell it all. Not just my story, but that of my parents, my grandparents, and my great-grandparents. They are all part of this history. My children would never know what they have inherited, what has been passed on from generation to generation, would not know of their endurance, the twists of their fates, the flow of history that was their world, and there will be no one to honor them. So I am writing this for my children. They are the roots and stock of the living plant. We are just the latest shoots. This one springs harvest. This one springs harvest. And maybe at some future time, when we stop the killings, maybe then there will be flowers. And that's the end of the introduction. Which... Goes nicely with the afterward, which I would like to read in its entirety. Um, and the afterward is actually titled what is left with three question marks. So we all know it's important to figure out what is left because there's three question marks. When I saw the Jewish cemetery in Warsaw in 1972, my first trip to Poland in 26 years, it looked just like the overgrown field that stood untilled for 30 years at the side of my house in New Hampshire. The trees were roughly the same age and type, a motley assortment of deciduous saplings leaning over a thick mossy underbrush. My New Hampshire field was strewn with rocks that once had formed a stone wall and boulders that a long time ago had been moved aside to clear the soil. Here, the moss covered stones and what looked like boulders, barely visible in the underbrush, on closer inspection, were recognizable as broken and overturned gravestones. Some had been overturned by the emerging roots of the newly grown trees. Others had been deliberately broken, their inscriptions barely visible a name here, a date there, the Hebrew lettering on some faded to what looked like an accidental scrape. It was June. My mother had died that April. Mietek, my stepfather, had asked me to accompany him on his first trip back to Poland since he had left the country as a young soldier in 1939. I did not want to be alone with him, and insisted that my daughter Lisa, who was 13 at the time, come with us. One of the purposes of Mietek's visit was to go to the graves of his parents, who had died before the war and were buried at this cemetery. As I was planning for the trip, my uncle Yasho said, Mietek will be visiting his parents' grave... Your other grandmother is buried there, too. Why don't you see if you can find her grave? This was my real father's mother. Since we had come to America and were reunited with Mietek, we never spoke of that part of the family. There was a pretense that I had no other father. He liked it when, on rare occasions, people who had just met us commented on our family likeness between us. Mietek and my mother had married when I was five years old, not long after her divorce from my father. A year after the marriage... The war separated them for seven years. With the war over, he found himself in the United States. Since I had never been legally adopted by him for the sake of simplifying immigration procedures, my mother and I entered America as his wife and daughter, and I simply began to use his name. By the age of 12, I had already lived under three different surnames for different purposes, so adopting one more for immigration seemed commonplace. My parents had not lived together since I was three years old, and my father had been killed during the war, sometime, somewhere, caught in the moving eastern front in the early years of the war between German incursions from the west and Russian incursions from the east. Mietek did not like to acknowledge that my father had ever existed. Once Mietek and my mother were together, my father was never mentioned. Yasho told me that my father's mother's name was Balbina Diwan, and that she had killed herself a year before the war began by jumping from a two-story window. That is all I know about her to this day. Whether the cause was the darkening political situation, was she a political person, or her son's failing marriage, or something else, I have no way of ever finding out. But there it was. She was, she was according to Yasho, buried in the Jewish cemetery in Warsaw. She was my grandmother, and Yasho thought it would be appropriate for me to put flowers on her grave if I could find it. "'Following the code of silence about my father, which I had been taught to maintain out of fear of Mietek's temper, I did not mention any of this to Mietek. "'On the way to the cemetery, Mietek asked the taxi to stop at a flower shop, and when he bought a bouquet of flowers, I did too. "'A bunch of pink and white carnations wrapped tightly with a strip of aluminum foil. "'The cemetery was surrounded by a tall brick wall.' We were discharged at the narrow gate, which opened into a wide alley of the cemetery, with narrower paths running off to the sides. On one side was a small caretaker's building, more like a shack, where one checked in and was expected to leave a contribution towards reclaiming what was once a well-tended cemetery. There was a new part of the large, even ostentatious graves of those recently deceased who had held some important government rank. The restoration of the old graves had obviously proceeded very slowly. In the shack, there was an elderly caretaker poring over large, crumbling ledgers. He explained to us that his task was to catalog the graves for which there was a record and to find those whose distant relatives sent funds for their recovery. There was an attempt to create a map of the cemetery. It would take years. I gave him my grandmother's name, but the ledgers were organized by years. He asked the date of her death, which might help him place the location, but I didn't know the date. Mietek, who knew exactly where his parents' graves were, was anxious to move on, so we followed him. Lisa and I walked more slowly behind him, and I took quick forays, left and right, off the main path, trying to decipher the names on the stones that were still upright, in some vain hope of finding the name I was looking for. Finally, I could see Mietek stop at a short distance from us. I was not up to asking for his cooperation in what I was doing. I turned to Lisa and said, let's keep walking. If we don't find it by the time we catch up with him, we'll just put the flowers on his parents' grave. I held the bunch of flowers tightly in my hand, and suddenly, without my being aware of any movement, the flowers were spilled at my feet. It was the strangest sensation. I had not been aware of either opening my hand or of the moment of the blossoms falling. It was like a break in time. Suddenly, the aluminum wrapping was unfurled, and the flowers were on the ground. What happened afterwards was even stranger. She must really want those flowers, I heard myself saying to my daughter, with a feeling of assurance that the fall was in direct response to my previous comment. I bent down, gathered the flowers, and with a strange certainty made a right turn on the path, reading the gravestone names. The third grave from the edge, said Balbina Diwan. This remains one of the strangest events in my life. I was really glad Lisa was there to witness it. I can bring back the strange feeling of disconnection in time, from walking down the path holding the flowers tightly in my hand, to the moment when they were spread in front of my feet, and the strange sense of certainty as I made the right turn off the path and started reading the names. These two feelings have stayed with me. I can recall them easily because they are like no others. Seeing my grandmother's name on the gravestone was at once a complete shock and a sense of affirmation. I have never forgotten the strange feeling of having both those contradictory perceptions simultaneously. What has really puzzled me most, accepting what, would, what had happened, was the question, why should she care? Why should my grandmother, whom I hardly knew and don't remember, care whether I put flowers on her grave 40 years after her death? Is that what is left? When our lives are over... Is there still some unsatisfied energy, a desire for continuity, for remembrance? For if this is so, I am writing this book to satisfy that desire. Perhaps there are a million of restless souls who need this homage of memory. Maybe I will be among them. The story is told for them. These were momentous events. There was life and death, horror, suffering, honor sacrifice, and arbitrary survival. I walked through those times, and I would like this book to be an offering to all those who walked there and also, who walked there also and fell, an offering to their heirs, real, spiritual, or intellectual, the bouquet of flowers. So I feel... Like she is connected in a way that I can't explain,
0: I don't think you have to I don't think you have to yeah i i
1: i feel I feel what you're saying, if that makes sense yeah and and to me it's why it's why I knew and was able to say out loud. Lisa needs to leave and mom can let go and she did 8 minutes later it's why I could uh I I could go to the baseball game and suddenly move down to a seat where then suddenly I'm on TV right before David Ortiz and I get to see him in his mm-hmm. historic last game it's why I I went to the park the other day and I thought to myself I I'm going to take my dog and and uh, I'm going to go to the park and the only person I saw was a a person I knew who had some information for me that I really needed. And uh, I feel like these are gifts that my mother gives me. And I don't know how long it will last, but I'll take advantage of it while it's happening and I'll see if I can't keep it going. Buddy, thank you so much for
0: for being my friend, for being there for me when I need you. Of course. and um, And opening up. About this
1: and introducing me to your mom, I really, uh, I, I've said it, and I, and you'll you see it in the book. Anybody who gets it, the uh, I'm going to read it in the acknowledgement. It's a small thing. I just wanted to write to say this right now. Uh, from the acknowledgments for my mom's book, I owe special thanks to Paul Gilmartin, whose sensitive interview, taped in his home in Los Angeles which became episode 51 of his program, Mental Illness Happy Hour, helped to open a window to my childhood memories. And it's something she reminded me over and over again. And uh, uh, it was another uh, bit of coincidence and synchronicity that that ended up being a huge part of her life and her death. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. I love you, man. Love you, too.
0: I don't really love him, but he said... I love you first, and I, I didn't have the heart to say I really like you, but I'm not ready to commit, so I just said I love you, and he, this is going to be so embarrassing when he listens to this. Um, we have a new sponsor that I want to tell you guys about, Movement Watches. Um, I don't know if you've been to a department store to buy watches, but uh, I'm going to be blunt. It's a bunch of horse shit. You're paying four to five hundred dollars uh, for a watch because you are paying a middleman. Movement watches was started by two broke college kids that loved stylish watches and they couldn't afford one. So, being a bunch of upstarts, they started their own company. Their watches started just ninety five bucks and they are awesome. The band uh, that I chose uh, and the watch face that I chose very minimalist. <laughs> What did I say? Minimalist, very minimalist. Um, it, it's, it. You look at it; and it's like a little piece of art on your uh, on your wrist. Because I think, you know, personally, I think what you wear kind of reflects what you. What you like, quality construction and styled minimalism. They've sold over 500,000 watches in 160 countries. You can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmtwatches.com slash mental. That's mvmtwatches.com slash mental. Um, step up your watch game, you guys. You're looking weak. Go to mvmtwatches.com slash mental. Join the movement. I want to also give some love to a, a new sponsor. We have me undies. Uh, they sent me a couple of pairs of underwear, and they have immediately become my favorite drawers uh, to wear. I especially love them with dress pants. I'm a little big in the uh, the thighs and the and, and the butt and, uh, dress pants would always bunch up on me because my underwear, you know, especially I get a little warm, they'd kind of uh, grab and I don't want to get too, uh, technical, but, uh, no problems with these. They were cool. Um, they, they never felt, um, they're just, it, how do I say this? Your balls will jump for joy. I know that's probably not the tagline they're looking for, but honestly, that's that's how I felt. And you wear your underwear all the time. So uh, try them. I love them. For the price of two cocktails, Meandies will deliver your new favorite pair of drawers right to your doorstep. Better day guaranteed. Try them on if they aren't the most comfortable, best feeling undies you ever had. They'll refund you and let you keep your first pair for free. Included in the price is the sweet touch of Modal. It's a special fabric made with best-in-class raw materials that are scientifically proven be three times softer than cotton. Uh, These uber cozy undies are sold exclusively on the MeUndies website where you will enjoy free shipping in the U.S. and Canada. Um, Seriously, they're fucking great. They're super comfortable and I can't recommend them uh, highly enough. For a limited time, everyone in my audience gets 20% off their first order, but you got to go to our special URL, which is meundies.com slash mental. That's M-E-U-N-D-I-E-S dot com slash mental. And with MeUndies Better Day Guarantee, you got nothing to lose, so don't wait any longer. Go to meundies.com slash mental right now for 20% off your first order. And one last time, that's meundies.com Slash mental, your balls will jump for joy. Finally, let's give some love to Probimune. Uh the first thing I do when I wake up every morning after I put on a thong and do some Mr. Universe poses, uh I take ProbiMune. Why? Because it is important the health of your gut is directly related to your digestion, your mood, how much energy you have, uh how clearly your head is thinking. I lived for years with an unhealthy gut and it fucking sucked. I was constantly sleeping, I was out of breath, uh I was uh, allergic to a bunch of foods that I can now eat. Um it's uh, what more do you want me to say? Probiome is easy to use, it's easy to travel with, it doesn't require refrigeration, and right now you guys can get the exclusive offer of a free bottle of Probe Immune when you sign up for automated delivery. That's a $34.95 bottle of Probe Immune free. All you got to do is go to probeimmune.com, and that's spelled P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E, and use the promo code MENTAL at checkout. You'll receive your first bottle of Probe Immune free, and you just pay six seventy-five shipping and handling. Then each month, Young Health, who makes Probe Immune, will automatically send you your supply of Probe Immune for thirty-four ninety-five with free shipping and handling. So, go to that's ProbiMune.com. That's P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E, dot com, and use promo code Mental at checkout to get your free bottle today. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, we have been having um, people canceling their monthly subscriptions, being monthly donors. Um would love it if we uh, had some, some new monthly donors. If not, I understand a lot of you guys are broke. I get it. I get it. Um, but if you feel like it, You can go to our website, mentalpod.com, and make a one-time PayPal donation, or my favorite, become a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. Um, It goes a long way towards keeping the show going, and um, we got expenses. We got expenses, and there's a lot of things I'd like to do to expand the show. I'd love to be able to uh, travel and record stories of people outside of Los Angeles, um, and that's just not feasible at this time with the, the budget that we, that we have. Um, and that's not to say I don't appreciate those of you that are donating. I resent you for other reasons. I resent you for your hygiene. I resent the fact that you stand too close to me when you talk and you haven't flossed. Have you ever had that person? That, that is a long conversation. The non-flosser that gets too close holy shit that should be the next uh, superhero movie that should be one of the villains (laughs) (laughs) non-flosser it always it always tells you the crime that he just committed like an inch from your face um this is an email i got from shy butterfly and she writes um it's a shame uh Yeah, it's a shame, and I wonder how females and males with anorexia or bulimia follow through with SSRIs, uh, which are uh, one of the types of antidepressants, when knowing they gain weight and lose control. I know I would starve myself at times in high school, but luckily got some help. But I've always struggled between treatment and the uncontrollable weight gain that comes with SSRIs. And uh, I wrote back and said, side effects fucking suck, but you can try another one. Uh, But it's sometimes it's better to have little extra weight and feel good than to be skinny and miserable but there and she was taking lexapro there's a ton of drugs that are similar to what lexapro does and one of them might not have those side effects all meds react a little differently with each person it's finding the right med is a huge amount of trial and error and um so just just keep trying and be patient with yourself and um making peace with where you are in managing your mental illness is a, one of the things you have control over. Um it's it is not you are not being weak in that moment by accepting where you are. If if you are still have a plan, you know, I'm going to see the psychiatrist, I'm going to keep talking to my therapist. It's okay to just go, wow, I'm really depressed today. I think I'm going to take a nap or I'm just going to, you know, watch Netflix. The last thing you need is beating yourself up on top of on top of the rest of that. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence survey. I'm right. I'm totally in my head right now that I've completely fucked this show up. I'm um, totally self indulgent. Um, you think I'm money grubbing. Uh, more people are bailing because they uh, barely tolerated uh, my uh, statements last month or last week, and now this has put them over the top. And um, I know this is the mean DJ voice in my head. I'm not even going to do him because he doesn't deserve that. Uh, he doesn't de- He doesn't deserve stage time on the podcast. It's bullshit, Paul. He was not on mic. I did not let him on mic. Amanda writes about her codependency. I know we're not right for one another, but I'd die if you left me. Boy, that sure sums it up, doesn't it? Uh, can you do it if those of you the regular listeners will get a chuckle out of this the way I did? Can you do an episode exclusively on having a narcissist for a parent? Well, actually, when you say exclusively, um, I got to say, at least every other episode, um, while the parent may not have narcissistic personality disorder, there's narcissism there. You know what, uh, Amanda, listen to the mini episode where I read an article by Dr. Alan Rappaport on co-narcissism, and that is a great one, uh, the best one, Um, and if you don't feel like listening to my uh, voice, go to his uh, website. Actually, just Google co-narcissism Alan Rappaport, uh, A-L-A-N-R-A-P-P-O-P-O-R-T, I think is how you spell it, but it's a profound piece uh, on being the child of a narcissist. And it's only like five pages long. Gray, who is uh, a gender gay, uh, young teenager between 10 and 15, uh, writes about their depression. Depression is having weights tied to your ankles to make you drown, but they aren't heavy enough to pull you down easily. You just bob on the surface, uh, about their ADD. It feels like moving a hundred miles an hour on a gravel road. Uh, about their o c d studying for the hardest exam of your life, but the exam is cancelled again and again, boy, those are good. Thank you for that gray. You know one of the gray gives us a snapshot from uh their life, hiding from my friends and family in every way. I would leave all of the time with no explanation and just wander aimlessly and sometimes I would forget where I was and I wonder if that's not i mean that sounds to me again not a therapist but that almost sounds like dissociating uh, to me. Um, winding up where you have no idea how you got there. That might be good if you're not talking to anybody. A, a therapist, I think that'd be that'd be good. Gray, dancing on my grave, shares an awfulsome moment. Uh, About this time last year, I was an extremely depressed, apathetic, and anxious perfectionist with an eating disorder coming to terms with realizing I had been sexually assaulted while simultaneously applying to 14 colleges. If that's not a hit comedy, I don't know what is. One day, I was in the car with my mom, and the conversation turned to a new fad, adult coloring books. As casually as I could, trying to appear almost half-joking, I mentioned that my therapist thought that I could benefit from buying one. I was too poor to buy one myself. Unsurprisingly, Mom got quiet and uncomfortable the way she did any time anything about mental health came up. However, she did surprise me when a couple of days later I came upstairs to find an adult coloring book sitting on my bed. I thought that conversation would have just been erased from our history and never mentioned again like most of our uncomfortable conversations. As I reached down to pick up the book, I noticed the title, Too Blessed to be Stressed. Thumbing through the book confirms my suspicion. The book is full of psalms and other quotes about God. I immediately recall a heated conversation that occurred a year earlier in which my mom refuses to believe that I'm an atheist. Wow. I think so many of us can relate to the well-meaning parent that just doesn't realize how much they're getting on our nerves and um, ignoring who we are and i don't know what causes that but my guess is that there's an emptiness inside them and and that they there's some type of payoff when they believe they know something somebody else doesn't know and the, one of the reasons i share that is i'm horrified when i find myself doing that when somebody shares something and i have to Chime in something that I think they might not also know about that. And uh, it's a really annoying, really annoying trait to have. And uh, not that that makes it any easier for you, but uh, I'm always fascinated by why we do the things that we do that hurt or annoy other people. Roland uh, filled out a shame and secret survey. He's straight. He's in his 20s. He was raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, He's never been sexually abused, but he has been emotionally abused. Uh, My last serious girlfriend knew about my depression, anxiety, and struggle with self-worth. She would constantly use this to her advantage to make me feel that my feeling or concerns about our relationship were stupid and invalid on the extremely rare occasion that I would build up the minimum amount of confidence to voice them. She would also use this to her advantage to ensure she got exactly what she wanted and that I was left complying no matter how much I may disagree." Darkest thoughts. I sometimes secretly hope that my best friend will die and that I will be able to marry his wife as I feel she is the only woman who truly understands and accepts me. Depression, anxiety, and all. Darkest secrets. I purposefully overdosed on oxycodone um, before getting together with my friends, knowing they would take me to the hospital and that it would get me the personal attention and closeness that I crave. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to read this, Roland, because I want you to know that you are so not alone in that. So many people fantasize about that. And I and and the other thing I want to say is that that thing that you're longing for, you can have that in, in a in a way where you don't have to um be secretive about it. And it's not easy um, at first to open up to people, but I think if you um found some other people to to start to open up to. Um you know, clearly your best friend's wife uh sees you and hears you and feels you, but it also sounds like maybe it's a little there's some sketchy boundaries there that might be hard for you to to respect. Um Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Arriving at my best friend's house while he isn't there and his wife telling me to take her quickly before he arrives home. You know, the the other thing too is when we grow up in environments where we're not really seen, where our emotional life is kind of uh, ignored, when we find somebody, particularly somebody who we might be sexually attracted to, and they do see us and feel us and hear us and all that, it's pretty it's pretty fucking intense. And, um, just be careful with that, that relationship with your friend's wife, because, um, when emotions have been stuffed down for a really long time and they finally have a place to come out, uh, it can be super, super intense. And, um, that's a complicated, that's a complicated setup, uh, with your, with your friend's wife. I hope I'm not being too bossy there. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by, can we please have a rational conversation about Pop-Tarts? Uh, no, we can't. Because if you're on the side of wanting uh, frosting, um, I cast you to hell. If you are on the side, like me, of believing that a true Pop-Tart should be plain, and either blueberry, strawberry, maybe apple, or cherry we can talk. We can be rational. Snapshot from their life. Uh, she writes every morning I wake up with the intention of getting so much done. I sit down to work and within a couple of minutes, my brain wanders. I pull it back to task and it lasts for a few more minutes before it wanders off again. All day, every day. I work so hard just to do, uh, just to do work, and by the end of the day I've achieved so little. I'm disappointed, angry with myself, and anxious about all the things I didn't do. I think I'm just lazy, and I've worked so hard all day. I dread the end of the week when I have to look back on what I've done, and it's all blank. Wow, that sounds really frustrating. Really frustrating. Um, I mean, maybe go talk to a, a psychiatrist or therapist. Maybe it's ADD. Who knows? Any comments to make the podcast better? Adopt a parrot. Better yet, two, since they are social animals and shouldn't be kept alone. Teach the parrots mean DJ voice. Enjoy. Well, I tell you what, I would name them if I had two parrots. One would be named Rock, and the other would be named Tober. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Abby Normal, and she's bisexual in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment, Um, never been sexually abused, but she has uh, been emotionally abused, only on a small scale. My best friend in college regularly put me down and did a pretty big number on my self-esteem. Since graduating, I've made a conscious effort to remove her from my life. Ironically, she went on to get a PhD in psychology, and I worry regularly about the people she works with. Yeah, there are some fucked up people out there in mental health, but uh, there's fucked up people everywhere. Darkest thoughts. I am turned on by fetism, and even though I'm at a healthy weight myself and would never approach my partner with this fetish, I enjoy watching videos of people personally purposefully gaining weight. It's so, so fucking bizarre, and I loathe myself for having these thoughts. What even, brain? On a totally different note, I've been thinking about self-harm more than usual. I imagine peeling off my skin in ribbons and revealing the true version of myself underneath. The whether that person is better than the mask I currently wear, I can't say, and that terrifies me darkest secrets. The deepest, darkest secret I have isn't mine. It's my dad's. While visiting for Thanksgiving last year, I discovered that he's addicted to pornography. I didn't catch him in the act, but on a support site, which I later visited myself, uh, that he's addicted to pornography. I oh, went, oh, which I later visited myself and where I found a journal he'd been keeping. His secret has now become mine because I have no idea who can, I can possibly talk to about this. I don't think anyone else in the family knows. All I can think about is the time when I was about 15 and using the family computer when suddenly all of this porn spam opened up on the screen. I got really upset, especially because I was convinced that my parents would think I had been browsing through bad sites. It infuriates me to know, uh, now to know that my father's own browsing history was behind that incident. I wish I could be more sympathetic towards him, especially given my own weird fantasies, but all I can feel right now is bitterness and betrayal. What makes it even worse is that he's a minister, and I'm not sure if I want to laugh or cry at the irony of that. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize pretty regularly about bondage, namely me being tied up, I also like to fantasize about rough sex, sometimes bordering on rape fantasy. I don't like sharing that. It feels extremely wrong and disgusting. Uh, Thinking about it is not wrong and disgusting. Uh, Doing it is wrong, and there's a huge difference. Um, How do you feel after writing these things down? Drained. Even typing them out required a lot of effort, and I would imagine that 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 draining feeling is because you are beating yourself up and you're feeling shame, and you haven't done anything wrong. You're just judging your feelings. And you're not wrong to be mad at your dad. Um, I'm not saying he deserves anybody to be mad at him, but you're feeling what you're feeling. And, um, uh, I think anybody'd be upset if they, they found their parent being a hypocrite. Um, you know, I, I remember, I think I've shared this on the podcast before, but um, I got caught smoking pot before uh, the first day of class, my sophomore year of, of high school, and they told my school told my parents, and my dad told me, this is the saddest day of my life except for the day my father died, and I felt so awful, and my dad was a smoker, and I said, okay, how about this, I won't smoke pot if you won't smoke cigarettes, and he said, deal, and so Four months later, keeping up my end of the bargain, I'm on my way to a concert with some friends. They pass a joint to me. I say, uh, no thanks. And they said, what, are you still doing that thing with your dad? And I said, yeah. And and my neighbor laughs. And he goes, dude, your dad is on the side of the house every night smoking a cigarette after dinner. And, uh, you know, I-, I felt more sad than I did anything Um and I, why why do I mention that? A because I like to talk about myself, but B our parents are going to let us down. They're people. They're going to do stuff that's hypocritical. Maybe the important thing with this is for you to talk to your dad and say, um, "I just want you to know that um, this makes me uncomfortable, or I want to have compassion for you, but I'm struggling right now." You know, maybe figure out what it is that you want from your dad? Do you want an apology? Do you want distance from him? Um, I think that would be a good thing to, to find out first. But the last thing you should be doing is beating yourself up for the way that you're feeling. All right. Let me step off my soapbox. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by rotten weed in a flowering garden. And he writes about his codependency. Not sure. I'll have to check with my wife. Beautiful. Hall of Fame. Short, sweet, to the point. Natalie C. writes about her anxiety. I wonder if the people who I smile at realize that all I want to do is curl up into a little ball and hide under my desk. Natalie, I bet if you asked, if people had to be honest, and you said in the office one day, everybody raised their hand, that right now wants to cry or curl up in a ball, under the desk, 60% of the people would probably raise their hands. And then somebody in the back p- pouring a cup of coffee would go, I kinda wanna kill myself, Is is does that count? Uh, snapshot from her life. You can have suicidal thoughts without actually wanting to kill yourself and you still deserve help. I used to wonder about killing myself all the time because I didn't think people saw how much pain I was in. I didn't actually want to kill myself, so I would just stew in these thoughts. I didn't tell anyone because I didn't want to be a burden. I finally called a suicide hotline, terrified. The operator convinced me to tell my therapist, and I slowly opened up. I'm so glad I did. You are not a burden, and your help is not a burden. So true. So true. That is the thing that almost all people who take their lives are convinced of is that they are a burden. And they forget that when you open up to somebody else about your pain, um, you're giving that other person a chance to get in touch with their own humanity, their own sense of meaning and purpose, that that genetic thing in us that that feels peace when we're there for each other. So it's it's a missed opportunity not only for you to find help, but for that other person to be of help to you. But that's the nature of mental illness. It distorts that thought in our mind uh, into telling us that we're worthless and lazy and we've blown it and nobody wants to hear our, you know, things. And that's not to say that there aren't people that shouldn't be gone to for help because there are other, there are people that simply don't know how to talk about emotions that are uncomfortable around them. And, um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying, uh, with other people. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Sally May. Uh, And uh, he writes, A while back, I was doing some summer work in an empty school library and listening to your podcast. You just read one of my surveys, and I'd burst into tears after hearing it aloud. I stopped the podcast to process the moment. Just then, a bored student wandered into the library and saw me in tears. Attempting to recover the moment... I grabbed the nearest book and told the surprised student that I was just really touched by the book I was reading. The student's expression grew stranger and I saw that I had grabbed a book about do-it-yourself small engine repair. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's clinical depression. Uh, Writes about... uh, gives us a snapshot of his life. I was sitting on a bench outside one of my college classes and I run into a classmate from a semester ago. We exchange pleasantries and I tell her I like her new hair color. She excuses herself back to class and I am left sitting there critically analyzing our small talk. I break into a cold sweat because through the reasoning in my mind, I think that because I complimented her hair color, she thinks I'm probably a racist. Seated and unmoving, I break into an intense sweat. I'm going to guess 99 out of 100, that other student was just lost in thoughts thinking about herself. 99% of the time, it's not about us. Um, a woman referring to herself as, I've retyped this enough to give you nothing, uh, writes about being a sex crime victim. I think it happened, but I'm too scared to say it and offend people who know they've gone through it. I'm so glad that you filled this out because there are so many people who are just like you, and you deserve to be heard. This is not about somebody being prosecuted. This is about you processing feelings that are inside you, and those they are two separate issues. Um, listen to the episode. Um, she also writes, I just want to hear from someone who didn't remember their sexual trauma and how they fo- found out. Um, uh, the episode with Lauren Ashley Bishop is 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 good. Um, there's some uh, cloudy memories in there. There's uh, the the topic of not fully remembering things is is in that one, and she's just a great guest, anyways. But um, like I said, the cl- clarity on the events isn't nearly as important as finding a way to deal with the feelings that are left in their wake. Because you know, it's not the splash that fucks us up. Uh, it's the ripples. i want to put that on a t-shirt. some Moment by Odyssey. She writes, A couple of guys yell at me from across the street, and I feel my stomach twist on itself, partially because I hate their obsessive and disgusting tone, but mostly because I feel happy that there might be someone who wants to fuck me. That is awfulsome. That's actually more awful than anything. I don't think there's any awesome in that. Um... But I'm glad that you know that that's what it is. Who needs a doctor when you have a cult leader? Writes about his depression. The perpetual cycle of guilt for lethargy, lethargy for apathy, and apathy for guilt. I'm not even sure what he means, but I like it. About his anxiety being, oh, I love this one, being afraid to say no to things because you might disappoint people while being afraid to ask people for anything at risk of being imposing. That is Hall of Fame. That is Hall of Fame. You just dug into my brain, set up camp, built a little fire, roasted some marshmallows, had your buddy pull your finger. It's horrible gas. One of you ran into... Maybe I'm getting a little too detailed in this. No Thanks uh, filled out a shame and secret survey. Uh, they are non-binary, uh, lesbian, 19, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, but been emotionally and physically Uh, darkest thoughts. I'm disgusted when people, even friends, talk about their sex lives, but this is especially true when it involves penises or men. For some reason, I pity people who have sex with anyone with a penis, and sometimes I become temporarily disgusted with the person. Not because they had sex, but because it involves a penis. I feel guilty about this because I know it's wrong to judge people based on their sexual activity, but I can't help but be grossed out. Darkest Secrets. Because of my penis repulsion, uh, I've shamed people in my life, including some of my bi friends, or secretly thought differently about them because they have or could possibly have sex with someone with a penis. It embarrasses me to be bothered so strongly and to have been horrible to people close to me because of it, especially given what an issue phobia is within the LGBTQ plus community. Um sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I frequently fantasize about using a strap-on with another person who has a vagina. I've shared it before, but it's confusing in light of my apparent penis repulsion. I'm I'm non-binary, but I don't seek to transition, pack, or in any way have a penis outside of a strap-on during sex. Um, Our sexual fantasies and our opinions on things are so puzzling. There's no way we're ever going to totally figure it out. But I think the important thing is to forgive yourself for how you feel about your repulsion and to try to be aware of how you express that around other people. And if you can, maybe apologize to some of the people you mistreated or judged Um that's all that matters, you know, if we clean up our mess. Keep telling yourself that, moron, writes about his depression. Not sure if I'm socially anxious because I'm depressed or depressed because I'm socially anxious. Either way, it's just heavy. Amen. Hey, fucking man. Uh, snapshot. From his life, the hardest thing to do is to hand the cashier in the cafeteria my credit card, while trying to hide my shaking hands and avoiding eye contact. That must be really hard, man. It must be really hard. Um, and that is so true, man. That that link between anxiety and depression—they just always seem like a like a two for one, two for one sale. You know what you might do the next time you hand your your credit card to the cafeteria is. Uh, is just look at the the cashier and just say, man, the heroin around here sucks. I don't know who cuts it, but they are greedy. I dropped a hundred bucks on that shit, and I'm still dope sick. Why else do you think I'd be using a credit card for a banana? Just a thought. Again, I'm not a therapist, but I once did cook risotto to a Sylvester Stallone movie. And I think I cracked a couple of decent jokes, so I'm qualified to weigh in on the most important issues that people face in their lives. Good God, what am I doing? I'm in over my head. Struggling social worker shares an awfulsome moment. After my wedding last fall, I put on a lot of weight I had previously lost. As was typical, I've been heavy since I was a child and my weight is always yo-yoed. My nagging depression and anxiety had come back, and while I knew I needed to go to the doctor, I kept putting it off. The task of finding a new doc was overwhelming, but after apparently having enough of my Eeyore mode, my incredibly codependent mother told me she didn't want to hear from me until I had an appointment. Keep in mind, we live 700 miles apart and only communicate over the phone. I finally got a recommendation from a coworker, and worked myself up to go. I sent my mom a screenshot of my calendar with the appointment scheduled for uh, a morning before work. The doctor was amazing. She heard me. She sat with me. She treated me like a human being. She put me on my standard Selexa dose and discussed what goals I had for my health. I left with a follow-up for a month out and feeling a hundred times better. The ink hadn't hardly dried on my Celexa script as I got in my car to leave. I called my mom to tell her the great news. I raved about my new doctor. I'd never had such a positive experience with a PCP. A primary care physician, I guess. I told my mom about getting back on Celexa and trying a non-benzo anxiety med. Great, she said, but did she give you anything for your appetite? Oh... I think about three quarters of the people listening just went, Oh, yeah, that's, I have a parent like that. Um, this is filled out by a, a teenage guy who calls himself cancer god. And, um, it's a struggle in a sentence survey, but, um, it, he didn't really put it into uh, a sentence, but I just wanted to comment on it. He, he writes, I was raped when I was five by a mental hospital. Nurse, I'm pretty sure now that it wasn't just a nightmare. And I wanted to say, first of all, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And um, a snapshot from his life, he writes, I used to think a lot about overdosing on something. Then I worried that people wouldn't notice. So now I think of setting myself on fire in public. And I want to say, please don't do that. People are There are people in the world that would love to help you, but they can't help you if they don't know what's going on with you. And you are worth help. So please don't do that. People can see your pain in a way that doesn't end your life or traumatize people around you. And you're not alone. Laura shares about uh, her anxiety and grief. Um, and actually this, this snapshot from her life, I think is just about the overwhelming feelings of being a mom. She writes, my youngest daughter is screaming about putting on her shoes. And I wonder, would it be easier to navigate the labyrinth of grief of losing my eldest child if I had no others? I get it. If, if, if that's as dark as your thoughts get, fuck, you're, (laughs) you're in good shape. Invisigirl shares an awfulsome moment. Uh, it's my 39th birthday today. I'm sitting in a restaurant by myself as I write this. My husband, who has forgotten my birthday for the third, third year running, just texted me to let me know that he doesn't feel like I'm giving him enough attention to his feelings and what is going on in his life. Hall of Fame. Hall H, actually, H-O-F-F, Hall of Fucking Fame. Some moment. Here's what you do. You hang in there with him. You wait till his birthday. You have a big cake, and you have your lawyer pop out of it and serve him his divorce papers. Or you can try to work on the marriage and tell, you, tell him how you're feeling. But I'd actually just like you to do the cake thing and shoot it with your phone. And upload it to our website. Soft white sheep. Shares about. Um, uh, their bigender. Shares about their anxiety. I fear fear failure so much that I freeze up. Because. Failing from not trying. Is so much less painful than trying and failing anyway. Oh my god. Again. You dug into my brain. You. You. For some reason, didn't bring a tent, just a cheap sleeping bag, which I find offensive. And you've mined my thoughts like a grizzled, bearded, greasy, overall clad, mid-1800s miner. And I high-five you, and yet I think you need to take a shower. Uh, they also share, I can't stop picking my skin and ruining it more because nothing feels as good as ripping my impurities out of me. I've heard so many people share that about dermatillomania and um, trichotillomania. Uh, they're also legally blind, too disabled to function, not disabled enough for anyone to help me. That has to be really, really hard. I'm so sorry that you have to deal with that. Um, snapshot from their life one time in my sophomore year of high school i was sitting in the front row of class and shoved a broken pen cap up my sweater sleeves ripping the skin on my arms apart it wasn't enough to bleed but it bruised and scabbed up anyway nobody noticed except for my mom four days later who told me to cut it with the emo no feelings bullshit your mom is a sick woman and i would Get away from her as soon as you can and not ever expect to get any kind of validation um, because that is really fucking sad and you deserve better. Snake in the eye. Um, Snapshot from their life. This isn't really a snapshot from their life. It's more of a statement. Uh, What doesn't kill you gives you trauma and lifelong issues with depression, anxiety, and dissociative disorders. While that may be true, um, I also want to say but lifelong issues with depression, anxiety, and dissociative disorders also force you to develop coping skills that will also be there in other parts of your life, including the ability to be vulnerable and transparent. You'll need to do that with a therapist to deal with your depression, anxiety and dissociative disorders so it's going to be there for your friendships and when you maybe want to get into a romantic partnership all of those tools will be there for you so yeah, trauma makes you climb Mount Everest but you know maybe hiking the other shit's not as hard I'm already hating that analogy Uh, Send your angry email to herbert at herbertsbutthole.com and then you could also tweet it. Uh, Just tweet uh, hashtag Herbert, hashtag treats, hashtag butthole. Sunshine shares a happy moment. When I wake up, speaking of dogs and my little dog comes up and licks my face then curls up next to me to wait for me to get up or just pet him he lets me know every day i'm the most important person in his life and he loves me no matter what my mood or horrid thoughts i have about me i love it i love it there is nothing better than that there is nothing better than that Madeline shares a snapshot from her life. She's dealing with depression, anxiety, alcoholism, and codependency. Um, I'm a suicidal alcoholic medical student with self-harm and anxiety issues. And right now in university, we're doing a psyche block. This is the most humiliated and dehumanizing I've ever felt. I am just like the textbooks. And I wanted to read this because I wanted to say that is awesome because now you have kind of a roadmap to understand that there are tools to deal with this and that you're not alone. You know, most mental illnesses can be managed. I understand that you're upset because it means that you're going to have to do stuff to manage it, but isn't it better to know that there are skills and tools to help you with it than to not know what the fuck is going on? My two cents. Chicken feet. Shares about his depression. Like I'm tethered to my bed. The further I am away from it, the harder it is for me to physically move and go about my day. About experiencing racial or cultural bias. Pinching my nose in the mirror to have a, quote, whiter face. And detach myself from the stereotype that Asian men aren't sexy. It doesn't work. I'm sorry you feel that way. You know, I would imagine most of us look in the mirrors, and the mirrors, and the mirror, and just pick ourselves apart. What we want to change. Um, Comments to make the podcast better. Could you interview someone with ED, please? And I don't know because he's male if he means erectile dysfunction or if he means an eating disorder, or both. Uh, Maybe there's a cure for both. Maybe there's a, uh, this is so, this is so insensitive, but the comedian in me has to say it. Maybe there's a diet for somebody with both kinds of ED. You can eat anything you want, but you have to eat it off the tip of your cock. If you are a monthly subscriber, I totally understand you unsubscribing right now. Um, This is a happy moment filled out by Carly. She writes, I realized today that although I still have anxiety, I am better than I was. I used to not be able to make phone calls or answer the phone. At times, my social anxiety would keep me in bed and cause me to miss work or school. Although my anxiety isn't gone, I have made so much progress and am finally letting myself feel proud of me. That is music. That's just music right there. Thank you for sharing that. I love when you guys share the little victories. had yeah, big victories too, but I think the little victories that for most of us tend to be uh, more realistic in terms of what recovery looks like. Uh, JB Witch Dance. Shares about her ADD. Sitting at a table in a foreign country and feeling calm because I'm not hearing every fucking conversation going on around me. About her love addiction. Does giving someone a gift and card, I love you, I'm sorry, after they say they hate you, love addiction? It might be. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Let's see. This is filled out by LJ. It's a shame and secret survey. She's in her 20s. Uh, bisexual, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. I've ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, Abuse makes me think of long-term actions, but I was sexually assaulted twice now. The first time I was uh, groped slash fingered, and then in parentheses ew, when I was 14. And the second time I was raped when I was in a blackout. This Is one of the reasons why I feel so strongly about the stuff I talked about at the beginning of the podcast. That there is such a lack of dialogue that she is questioning whether this is even valid. It is heartbreaking. If you're listening, it is absolutely valid. And I'm so sorry that you experienced that. And I'm so sorry that you have to deal with this in a society that has so many people that don't either get it or care to get it. But there are a lot of us that do. And the trick is just finding them. thank you thank you for sharing that I just I wanted you to know that you're not alone and almost all of us who have been violated have that same voice in our head that tells us ours isn't valid and it's one of the biggest hurdles to healing and I think that's also why it so angers me that this is being dismissed by people in the media. Um and I think also because it it's one of the things that contributed to me not confronting what happened to me for decades. Rory shares about her anxiety. Spending an hour in traffic to get to college but getting the bus home five minutes later because I started crying before entering the building. Oh, I'm so sorry about her OCD. Being atheist, but also spending months researching as many religions as possible just in case I missed something important that will get me into heaven. About experiencing sexual bias. I feel like I'm going to cry anytime a girl is nice to me because I feel like an evil predator just by existing near them. Oh, I guess she feels like she's I'm not sure who she thinks is has the sexual bias um, about her experiencing depersonalization and derealization, trying to crack my head open on a tree so I can climb out from behind the screen I've been trapped in since I was 15 years old snapshot from her life. I've tried holding ice, meditation, holding more ice, begging my therapist to please help me and explain to me why I haven't felt real for so long. It's been five years and I've had four therapists in that time. One of them told me that they were just searching my symptoms on Google and read out some article. I felt hopeless and scared. I felt like screaming I still feel like screaming. I've been Googling and looking in forums for years and nothing is working. I've been on a waiting list for therapy for six months. I don't get excited at concerts anymore because I just feel like I'm watching it on a tiny TV screen. All I can do is write real hand on my fucking hand to remind myself i don't know if this is the right place to write but i'm tired and nobody is listening i lost five years of my life to this and i'm scared i hate that i feel selfish for begging to be able to remember what it feels like to feel i'm really sorry if this is inappropriate this is so not inappropriate rory and i really really hope that you get to hear me read this um I am not a mental health professional, um, but it sounds to me like you have not found somebody that understands depersonalization and derealization because it's such a specific um, thing that, that needs... Um, if you haven't listened to the episode yet, even though uh, her issue is dissociating, um, it, it's. I think you should listen to the episode with... Um, Oh, fuck, why am I going to blank on her name right now? I can't believe I'm blanking. She has a dissociative identity disorder and um Melanie. And l- listen to Melanie's episode and also email me and I will pass your email along to therapists that I know and see if they have any suggestions because... um You deserve to find somebody who's qualified. And somebody fucking Googling what they think is wrong with you while you sit in their office um, is really sad. It's really sad. Of course you're scared. And of course you're angry and frustrated. But just hang in there. Just hang in there. (coughs) Hey, you. (coughs) Excuse me. shares an awful moment. My husband was experiencing his very first bipolar mania. A doctor thought that since every teacher in my husband's workplace was stressed, his symptoms must be because of stress. He prescribed Prozac, which only helped escalate the mania. One night around that time, my husband decided to see if smoking weed would calm him down. At first, it seemed to work as he sat still for the first time in days as we were talking. But then he started responding to things I wasn't saying. Oh, I see. And Back to the Future 3 sucks. I was scared at first, but then I realized he was basically just tripping balls. Since by this time I was the only person he trusted by now, I didn't see how getting an ambulance would do anything but make it worse. So I spent an hour gently keeping him on the bed and agreeing every few minutes that Back to the Future 3 sucks, even though I actually like it. A few days later, my husband was hospitalized, and we were married a month after that. He's still working on living with bipolar, but we watched Back to the Future 3 together not long ago and agreed that it isn't really that bad. Fantastic. Fantastic. Sweet Sweat gives us a snapshot from her life. Today, I gave a speech for work. Public speaking is my number one phobia. Usually, I have it under control. Today, I just started sweating and sweating and sweating. The more I sweat, the more nervous I got about the fact that I was sweating, and I sweat in the face. No way to hide the rivers streaming down my face or the fact that my face had turned bright red. I stumbled and forced myself through the talk, but it was a constant inner inner monologue of I wish I was dead, fuck my life. I just wanted to read this because I want to say I've been doing stand up for 25 years. I was on a TV show for 16 years and I sweat doing this fucking podcast. Some of us just sweat and beating yourself up for it isn't going to help. I can tell you this. Um, uh, it may not help with your sweating on your face, but if you, if any of you out there are nervous sweaters and you have to do some type of speech performance, Wear black or wear white, um, and if you can, wear an undershirt. And if possible, this may be hard, deliver your speech uh, sitting on an ice sculpture of a horse. Sometimes they're hard to get at the last minute. Trouble and Screams shares... uh, He shares anxiety. I believe others can read my thoughts and know how horrible of a person I am on the inside. What is OCD? I fear the wrath of an angry God that I don't even believe in. And then a snapshot from his life. I'm sitting in a classroom and all I want to do is scream and run until my legs give out because I feel everyone in here is watching me and knows how disgusting and impure my thoughts are. I feel like all the blood is draining from my head as I try to con- concentrate, but the only notes I can take are the lists of reasons why I'm a bad person. I really hope no one reads this over my shoulder. Um, please go talk to somebody. You're in so much pain and so much trouble It sounds like shame. Um, I I would be shocked if there wasn't some type of uh, religious abuse. You know, not necessarily like, you know, a religious person touched him. But I've seen so many, um, read so many surveys of people that were raised in really, really judgmental uh, homes where religion was the lens through which judgment, you know, was kind of sadistically thrown at them and a lot of them seem to share the things that that he shared this is a happy moment shared uh, by apathy is not a phase mom she writes I have spent the last four years working as a nanny for a family with three sons, now ages 6, 7, and 11. I had never told them much about my childhood, though they had known that my biological father was not in my life. They're from a relatively stable nuclear family and were often curious if mine was the same. A few months ago, I had to see my abusive biological father for the first time in 16 years and was obviously bothered by it when I returned uh, to work the following week. As I got the boys ready for bed, the eldest asked me what was bothering me. I explained to them in the most age-appropriate manner that I could uh, and answered any of their questions in a similar fashion. Once their parents had gotten home and I was getting ready to leave, each of the boys snuck out of their beds and gave me a hug and then went back to bed. Normally, I'm against being touched, but knowing that these children were willing to show me some form of compassion was comforting. That's beautiful. Thank you. Treading Water shares about his OCD. I ask myself questions daily about everything, whether I'll survive the day, whether my daughter will die, whether my girlfriend is cheating on me with a guy from work. The first answer that I visualize in my head, either a yes or a no, I will accept as gospel truth. I react accordingly. Um, And then there's other stuff that he's written here, but the thing that struck me that I just wanted to say is sometimes... You know, there's a term in recovery, the bondage of self, and sometimes it's just we need to get out of ourselves by taking an interest in somebody else. And and even though, you know, when we're worrying about somebody else, you know, quote-unquote worrying, it's really about us because we're afraid that if something happens to them, we're going to feel pain. And um, I got to say, when I find things that take me out of obsessing about my life, and myself, and how am I doing, that's usually when I'm in the best mood because nothing degrades the quality of my life like obsessing about the quality of my life. I'm a casualty, shares about their depression, or her depression. My generalized depression feels like I have been missing out on the joke that everyone else is laughing at for my whole life. I so get that. I so get that. That feeling... Like a group of people laughing, and just being like, "What's that like? What's that like to just laugh, like belly laugh easily many times a day?" Um. This is filled out by if Paul were a woman, we'd call him Paula. Uh, and he writes, "Today I deleted my Facebook account. I got worked up over a foolish comment someone made. I had the perfect response. In fact, I had about four perfect responses, each meaner than the last. Then I stopped." Why was I so mad about some dummy I'd never met? Screw that. So I just blocked him. Then I remembered all the other little things that bothered me too much on Facebook. I realized that while I'm making great strides in improving my mental health, I'm not helping myself by being on that website. So I deleted my account and I'm going to spend time figuring out why I get so upset so I can get better. Then I'll consider reactivating my account. I did a healthy thing for myself. That is just awesome. That is, this is what recovery looks like. Just little things like that. And that was brought to you by... uh, (laughs) you. I fucked it up. That was brought to you by MySpace. Um, Any suggestions to make the podcast better? Paul, you should wear overalls with no shirt. Nothing sexual, just a solid look. I think you could rock. Um, I am actually in thong overalls right now which are overalls that that um then slender down into a thong uh, but i am wearing a shirt but it is a halter top so i'm half rocking <laughs> i kind of want to ask a listener to make me a uh, thong so I could take a picture of myself in thongeralls and post it on the website, uh, which I would not. Uh, this is filled out by RP McMurphy. And oh, by the way, uh, RP, if you're listening, you emailed me and I emailed you back and the email came back. Uh, and that happens many times. So if some of you have never gotten a response from anybody from the podcast, um, I like how I'm acting like I have a big staff. Um it, it's a lot of times it's because you mistyped uh, your email and that email doesn't exist. So I've asked my web person to maybe put in the thing where you have to confirm your your email, you know, type it twice. But in the meantime anyway, I wanted to read uh what she writes about her OCD perpetually afraid of someone thinking I'm lying so badly that I try to think back everything I've ever said to them regarding a subject and double-check everything I'm about to say before I say it to make sure I haven't contradicted myself in the past. I do a version of that when I go into a store that sucks and I realize I don't want to buy anything in this place, I'm always afraid to walk out quickly because, A, I'm afraid I'm going to hurt their feelings, and, B, I'm afraid they're going to think I stole something. So I just, it's just ridiculous. I can't even talk anymore about it. It's so embarrassing. This is a happy moment filled out by midnight at the window and uh, she writes fall days when the temperature drops and our radiators kick in at my land grant Midwestern college dorm. It's inky black darkness out Friday night and I'm alone in this old apartment built in the forties and barely renovated since. I've berated myself all week for being a lousy teacher and a toxic and scathingly insecure ex-girlfriend. Still, right this minute I feel guiltless for watching a Japanese soap on Netflix. I'm almost safe and this dark and intensely radiator-warm womb of reprieve. For now, just for a bit, I'm almost safe from my own near-constant spin of self-abuse. I almost feel guilty for loving this little moment. That is beautiful. And I think everybody who just heard that is like, Oh my God. Yes! Yes! The cocoon! That's all about the cocoon. And uh, any questions to make the podcast better. Uh, I'd love a show on suicide survivors. Check out the episode with uh, Desiree L. Stage. And I know there are others, but uh, that would be a good one to start with. Thank you for that. Let's see. I'm running out of steam. Sorry about this. I always think I can read more than I can. (laughs) I run out of gas. What are we at? 140? Um, This is a happy moment filled out by We Go Together Like Cocaine and Waffles. And she writes, I grew up in an abusive family and my mom was part of that. Emotionally, sometimes physically, and sexually. Although I didn't realize the sexual abuse until recently. For years, we had an unhealthy relationship, and she was always right. I never thought much would change, and then I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I had to take a step back from my family, mom, and sister, and they did not take it well. They blamed my caring, emotionally supportive boyfriend. Finally, one day, I blew up around extended family when my mom loudly, quote, joked that she never hears from me and she deserves better. I lost it and told her I wouldn't confide in her until she went to therapy. She's almost 60 and has been the same since I can remember. I know there's love, but she didn't understand how to show it without being extremely hurtful. Therapy never seemed like an option, and then one day, she did it. My family saw the changes I've made in my life, the happiness I now hold, and they made a change. My mom said she was sorry to my boyfriend, he almost passed out from shock, and she accepts whatever relationship I'm comfortable having with her which I'm happy to say has grown so much over the past few months. I know I set a good example and having a mother I can talk to now is the best feeling. It puts a smile on my face even now. Thank you for that. That was hard to read because I was really um, envious. Really envious. Any comments to make the podcast better? I would love to hear more about adults who have difficulties with sex, either due to past events or not. There are, are tons, almost every episode um, that involves sexual trauma, tra- especially childhood sexual trauma. Um, there's usually some type of um, intimacy struggle. Um, so I would, uh, when you go to the website, uh, go in the website search box and type in uh, intimacy and see see what comes up. but. There should be a ton, and then finally, this isn't. It's an awfulsome moment, but um, I, I understand why it's. I'm not going to explain it. It's not funny. Um, I guess that's what I want to say for those of you that are new to the show. I like how I'm explaining what awfulsome is in literally the last two minutes of the show. Um, something that was awful at the time, but looking back on it, there was something um, funny or uplifting about it and this is filled out by daytime as for napping and she writes uh i have a 30 pound mutt named cassie and i occasionally take her on the subway she loves it we use a big canvas bag she'll sit on it and wait as i adjust it around her The entrance to my station is pretty hectic. A lot of people gather there trying to hustle a living, so you have to navigate your way through a lot of stuff and action. Not that long ago, I went somewhere and brought Cassie with me. We mazed our way through the crowd, and when we reached the entrance, I put the bag down. As usual, Cassie steps in, and I kneel at the top of the stairs to adjust it, and I'm just about to hoist her up when I hear someone yelling, Hey! What are you doing with that dog? Hey! Hey! I look up but i don't see anyone i just hear him yelling at the top of his lungs hey hey what are you doing with that dog then he steps out from the crowd and we look at each other he's huge probably six four and he's wearing layers of grease blackened rags his eyes are very red and he is and he is completely out of his mind i remember quickly taking stock of my situation a mid-crouch with a dog who is, mostly, I hope, in a bag. It's crowded, and I'm at the edge of a flight of stairs with a manic fast approaching. A maniac fast approaching. Not ideal. As yelling man comes toward me, I get up, shrugging the bag over my shoulder and whirl about to face him. He was right in front of me when I put my hand up and said, shh, 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 like you would with a child, shaking my head softly. He stopped short and reared up, looking dumbfounded. I said, shh, shh, it's okay, it's okay, and made calming gestures in the air between us. He went quiet, and I turned my body so he could see that the dog was fine. I wasn't doing anything bad to her. She was okay, everything was okay. He stared at Cassie, then he stared at me. We held eye contact for a second, and I saw something shift like he just recognized something. I knew that was my moment to exit, so I turned my back and carefully walked down the stairs. I waited for him to start yelling and thought he might come down after me, but it was totally quiet. No one was in the stairwell. In fact, there were no sounds coming from the outside at all. I listened for him the whole way through, but I walked the long corridor, carrying Cassie in complete silence. I know this story shows the upside of experiencing mental illness. If you've gone through it come out the other side, then you know what a fragile thing the mind is. If you live with psychic pain, you gain compassion for the suffering of others. Those traits, understanding and compassion, get you through a lot in life. They make things easier on everyone. I hope you were as touched by that as I was. And I hope you uh I hope you enjoyed this this episode. And uh I hope I didn't lose more listeners, but you know what? I'm cool if I did. I'm good. Sometimes we just got to speak our truths. And um, um, I appreciate your support. And I hope you heard something that helped you. And if you're still afraid to get help, um, just know it's never as bad as your mind makes it out to be. And uh, you're not alone in whatever you're going through. And things can get better if we just try new things and are open to help possibly coming in a form we hadn't predicted that's how it worked for me and I'm glad I'm around because I I love my life and I'm grateful for for you guys and uh, Herbert's Butthole and unfrosted Pop-Tarts and hockey and hopefully my soon to arrive